The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Embracing what makes us unique creates more possibilities for all. Learn more at usbank.com diversity. U.S. Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Some of our audience has been asking us, what is the forum exactly? Well, for over 31 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, or the Forum for short, has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we call DEI, by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. The Forum operates as an organization within Augsburg University, which is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. However, the forum's audience is international, offering a wide variety of DEI events, programs, and resources to businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world, all looking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills. We do this through our events and programs, our media platform, like our website, and our flagship event, the annual conference. Visit our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org, to learn more and get access to hundreds of online resources, like our webinar archives, articles, DEI video library, upcoming webinars, and other special events. While you're there, visit our sponsorship page to see how you can help support the forum and our mission of engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for joining for today's podcast, The Neuroscience of Trust, Empathy, and High Performance Teams with Dr. Kenneth Nowak of Invisia Learning. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. In this podcast, Dr. Nowak will describe new research on how to measure and change a key aspect of an effective company and team culture, interpersonal trust and psychological safety. Dr. Nowak will summarize the latest neuroscience research around interpersonal trust and its relationship to the hormone oxytocin that provides insight about the biological survival roots of unconscious bias and in-groups bias. Finally, research for from Dr. Nowak will explore the link between high trust teams with important employee outcomes such as retention, engagement, reduced job burnout, and well-being. This podcast will explain the association between empathy, trust, in-group bias, and hormone oxytocin. Describe the two foundational components of high trust slash high performing teams. Identify four key contributors to interpersonal trust and psychological safety. Dr. Kenneth Nowak is a licensed psychologist and co-founder and chief research officer of Invisia Learning, Inc. Ken received his doctorate degree in counseling psychology from the University of California, Los Angeles, and has published extensively in the areas of 360-degree feedback, leadership, stress, coping, and wellness. He is the author of two books, and his latest is Clueless, Coaching People Who Just Don't Get It, second edition. Ken serves on Daniel Goldman's Consortium of Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations and serves as Editor-in-Chief of the American Psychological Association Journal, Consulting Psychology Journal, Practice and Research. 
Ken is also a fellow of the American Psychological Association, Division 13 Society of Consulting Psychology. Ken also serves as a member of the Center for Global Inclusion as an expert panelist and has served as a resource for the Global DNI Benchmarks publications. Without further ado, I'd like to hand things over to Dr. Nowak. Ben, thank you for uh, the wonderful introduction and being here today. Uh, trust is just so fundamental to human beings' uh, existence and uh, hopefully are flourishing in the next thousands of years. And, Knock uh, on wood. <laughs> personal experience with um, trust that um, makes this podcast uh, even more meaningful. Sitting right uh, down beside me is a four-legged creature. Um, is, her name is... Uh, Kona, and she is one of nine service dogs uh, we raise for the blind uh, over many years. And hopefully if you hear any whimpering, um, jingling noises, it's not my stomach. Uh, it's actually Kona sleeping nicely right beside me. But if you think about service dogs, and uh, particularly the ones we raise for the blind, the relationship between the individual that's sight impaired or blind and the dog is an incredible test of trust and trustworthiness. Um, so if you can imagine just for a moment, your entire life of uh, wandering around, getting on transportation in the city, getting about in your house, really being dependent on the dog that's with you and uh, building in that bond, it becomes a really great learning for me, both in the research and practitioner work that I do that sort of introduces this topic. So what I'd like to do in the next 30 minutes or so is um, talk a little bit about the neuroscience of a very hot uh, label and topic called psychological safety and also that of interpersonal trust and sort of break those two down. They sound similar and they're sort of two sides of a coin and share some of the latest uh, research of our own and um, a lab colleague of mine, Dr. Paul Zak, Z-A-K, that um, I'll share more about in a little while on how trust and empathy seem to be related to a single hormone and peptide uh, called oxytocin. And I want to end my presentation today with um, tips and suggestions for how to enhance uh, trust culture, both at an individual and um, at an organizational level. Our work in trust is um, one that's gone on for many years. In fact, uh, one of our more recent analysis that uh, we've not published, but I'll share with you today, is to take a look at um, over 30,000 senior leaders using a multi-rater tool of ours called Executive View 360. And we did an analysis uh, looking at the prediction of um, which factors or competencies, if you will, that we measure are predictive of job performance. And job performance was uh, measured by an objective outside measure uh, by managers or leaders of the individuals that uh, were rated on the 360. And we identified four factors um, in order and in strength. Um, the first factor very intuitively that um, senior leaders need to be successful was problem solving and problem analysis. Uh, second was building high performance teams or team building. A third, which seems very intuitive, is a drive for results. But one of the um, fourth ones that added to the predictions of uh, high performance and executives was interpersonal trust, the demonstration of integrity, the demonstration of authenticity, the ability to uh, show some vulnerability, and uh, obviously a belief that this is an individual at a senior level that um, has the capability to drive company success. So we find in our trust model that um, trust is central to the outcomes that many practitioners and human resource uh, executives care about, things like employee engagement and retention, uh, 
psychological well-being, physical health, creativity, job performance, all seem to be tied to um, what leaders do and obviously organizational practices and procedures. So I'll share a little bit about um, just some general research that um, we know about with regards to trust in organizational performance. And one of the most latest uh, research studies is um, coming out of the University of Amsterdam by a very well-known researcher named Bart de Jong. And Bart um, actually used a methodology called meta-analysis. For those of you that aren't too steeped in research, uh, it's really a way of statistically compiling and comparing all published and sometimes unpublished research, such as doctoral dissertations and um, drawer studies that uh, people haven't published, and statistically analyzing and looking for trends. And uh, this particular meta-analysis looks at 112 uh, published studies, uh, well over 7,000, almost 8,000 teams, and explored the relationship between trust and performance. And what they found was um, a very uh, important finding, and again, pretty intuitive, that um, increased team member trust does in fact significantly enhance team performance with a, a moderate to moderately large, what we call effect size, so the impact. And today our company, for example, is multinational. We've got two offices uh, in the UK. We're based here in the United States. So a question that some of you may have on the podcast is that sounds great for kind of the old world of work where we'd all come together, sit in an office. But what about in today's um, virtual teams and multinational and global environments? Um, how powerful is trust? And again, some answers to that question come out of uh, research by Christina Breuer and her colleagues um, at the University of Munster in Germany that conducted a different and um, newer meta-analysis uh, just with remote teams. And her study looked at um, over 52 published research studies, um, well over 1,800 teams, and again, found a very strong and positive relationship between trust, even with virtual teams. And obviously, um, it might be more important with um, team performance for teams that um, are, in fact, working together in a, a single environment but her data really does support the idea that trust is a fabric that whether you're working together in one building in one location or you're um, virtually listening to a podcast anywhere in the world today, uh, that trust is an underlying factor for high performance. And in one of our research studies, um, we've actually been able to demonstrate that um, the difference between a low and high trust culture is quite dramatic and quite predictive of things like employee engagement, and um, one study with um, well over 1,095 individuals um, in diverse organizations, we found a very strong correlation between joy at work, job satisfaction, productivity, uh, retention, even life satisfaction, and job burnout using the Maslow Burnout Inventory with high trust versus low trust cultures. So I think all of you listening today will probably resonate with the idea that um, trust is fundamental to working environments and teams, whether it's a team of two, like somebody that's sight impaired and um, their service dog, um, or a large organization. I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, introduce a pretty hot label, pretty hot concept right now called psychological safety. And if you can envision um, uh, binoculars in front of you and the two um, circles, the two lenses of the binoculars, and one of the circles of the binoculars would really be a focus on this label called psychological safety. And I want to define that concept um, as really a focus on how I might behave towards you 
particularly in a partnership, a team, or a group, and it's my sense of feeling safe. It's the sense that I can let my hair down and um, be authentic and take a risk to share or disagree and believe that I won't be bullied or punished. So it's really the extent to which I believe you will give me a break depending on how I behave. And that's kind of a, a working definition, if you will, of psychological safety and underpinning, if you will, of um, one side of the trust formula. On the other side of the binoculars, it's really what um, I might focus on how others treat me, how they behave towards me. You're investing money with um, your investment banker or having a surgical procedure done. You're pretty much entrusting that individual to work on your behalf and certainly hoping and praying that uh, they have the right knowledge and competence and experience uh, to deal with you in a, in a pretty positive way. And that would be the lens and the working definition of the sense of interpersonal trust is really making sure when there's some ambiguity uh, that others really can support and work towards you. The um, history of psychological safety goes back a long time. Um, recently, we see a lot of uh, popularity with the label, but honestly, we can go back to the early 1950s, even with assessment tools, for those of you that are familiar with Will Schutz, Biro B. Um, Will didn't use the name psychological safety, but um, in one of his measures um, of Biro B, one of the scales, if you will, he talked about this idea of openness, uh, being willing again to share, be assertive, to take a risk uh, when we feel safe with another individual. And even in the early 60s, uh, Ed Shine and Warren Bennis, um, in talking about unfreezing of teams, used the word psychological safety. And um, we looked at even Ryan and DeCeci's self-determination theory in the early 2000s, where they really did talk about the fundamental needs of humans of being competent, having autonomy, and being psychologically related or that sense of interpersonal relationships, sort of the safety behind that. And very popular in, that, in about 2012, most of you heard of a great research project done at Google uh, or now known as Alphabet in which they looked at um, almost 200 working teams internally to try to define what was the secret sauce, um, what differentiated the high performance, highly creative teams in all different aspects of their business with those that weren't um, quite as successful. And they found that one of the fundamental building blocks of the most successful teams, uh, which was the term they used, psychological safety, is that people felt very safe, again, to disagree, throw in their ideas, to assert themselves, to um, feel as if they could be themselves when working with others. And more recently, uh, Harvard psychologist and best-selling author Amy Edmondson and her book, a really great book called The Fearless Organization, has um, really popularized the concept academically. She's got a measure of psychological safety. And uh, my colleague and friend Dan Radicki uh, has also written a book that um, you can Google and find called Psychological Safety. So there's a lot of um, recent and historical um, stories about the backdrop of uh, psychological safety, but it is in fact an incredible building block for high performance teams and organizations. And when we look at um, just the sense of interpersonal trust, the other side of the coin of psychological safety, we've been able to uh, actually define four building blocks. So the rhetorical question to all of you listening today is take any human, take any boss, manager, colleague, life partner, and if you say, um, gosh, what goes into my beliefs about whether or not I really trust this individual, 
uh, we've been able to identify four particular factors. And again, when I share all four with you, you'll nod and say, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, we do this pretty spontaneously. And the first is uh, just this concept of how consistent are people? How reliable are they? Do they walk their talk? And the more the people follow up on what they say they're going to do and they are consistent and um, their ability to behave in a manner that's predictable, we tend to trust them. So that's um, one factor, one pillar we call consistency. And certainly a second that um, I mentioned a moment ago was this belief in competence, a belief in skills and abilities. And we don't want to work with, nor do we want to use people that we really don't feel know what they're doing. It's one of the fundamental competencies when we evaluate people of just overall competence. And we call this factor capability. The third is we want to believe that people have our back. If they're investing money of ours, if they are in fact operating on us, if they're working on a team with us, if we're in a life partnership, we want to believe that uh, they care about us and support and have empathy for what we do. So caring is um, a third pillar that goes into an overall evaluation of interpersonal trust. And the fourth is just this concept of integrity and honesty and candor. And the moment um, I don't tell you the truth, you find a, a long hill uphill of restoring trust. And I wish we had more time today to talk a little bit about uh, what we've learned about uh, building trust once it's broken, but these four pillars again are pretty established. Two of them, interestingly, are more what we call cognitive. It's the assessment we make at uh, kind of a non-emotional level. So think of cognitive trust again as, do I believe this person knows what they're doing, has the right skill set, and do they behave, behave in a way that's pretty consistent? And uh, these really do look at accomplishments and skills and reliability. And um, it equally kind of weighs a sense of, are they practically able to do the things we need in a team and in a relationship? And the other two that I mentioned, caring and candor, are much more what we call effective or emotional. And we think about how close we are to individuals and our friendships and our empathy. And interestingly, not our own work, but the great work of uh, Aaron Myers, who's a professor at INSED, University in Paris and has written extensively in Harvard Business Review, but uh, if you haven't seen her great book called uh, The Culture Map, Breaking Through the Invisible Boundaries of Global Business, I highly recommend that for anyone listening today. And she shared how both the two aspects, the cognitive, the head part of trust, and the affective or heart part of trust are in fact culturally embedded. And when we do work around uh, the world, we actually see this played out. Some of our great partners, for example, in Spain, very much value and treasure. Um, the relationship side, of course, they care that we do quality work and have great assessment tools that um, are valid and reliable and uh, do what they're advertised. But at the end of the day, um, the effect of trust is really more key and critical than when we go, for example, anywhere else in the US or the UK and do business. So I want to share for a moment, uh, interestingly, kind of the neurobiology, the brain science behind psychological safety, uh, feeling safe with others. And I think if um, you are any, any age that uh, remembers being an adolescent, uh, you probably heard this saying from maybe one or more of your parents. I know I did. And that saying was, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And I want to say and uh, emphasize that I believe that that statement is absolutely positively false. And the reason I know so and believe so really comes out of some cool research from the University of California at Los Angeles 
by um, Naomi Eisenberger and her uh, group of colleagues uh, that did a really interesting study um, in the early 2000s. And she used a, a paradigm that uh, is well known, it's called Cyberball. And really briefly, she'd bring um, about three or four people into her lab and uh, they were told they're gonna be playing a video game with each other and simultaneously gonna be uh, measuring brain activity using functional magnetic resonance imagery, or fMRI. And unknown to the uh, actual participants, um, she pulled one and said, well, we're gonna get you wired up, come on, leave the lab. And uh, the other three were left in her lab. And what wasn't really explained initially was they weren't really playing against each other, although those were the initial instructions, they were playing against a computer. And the way the game works is pretty simple. If there's three or four individuals, um, you think while you're laying down with the keyboard and your brain is being measured, that you're actually playing a video game where you can uh, press a button and um, shoot a ball, if you will, to another participant that you just met. And uh, one other uh, would press a button that would go to a, a second or third individual and eventually come back to you. And that's sort of the paradigm of what Cyberball is all about. And what's interesting about it is uh, that game pretty much emulates what um, life was like when maybe we were adolescents, uh, kicking a soccer ball or playing catch or throwing the ball with each other uh, with great glee. And Naomi um, measures what's going on with the brain while people are engaged in this game for a few minutes, and then the computer changes the rules. So again, I think I might be pressing a button and uh, throwing a ball or kicking a ball back to Ben, and Ben may push the button uh, that I think he's doing, pushing it to Sally, and Sally may push a button, uh, sending it out to Matt, and then Matt pushes a button, and I don't get the ball, but it goes back to uh, Sally, it goes back to Ben, and they continue to play with each other for a few minutes, and I've been excluded from this game. And that's where the experiment stops, and Naomi um, actually stops and asks each of the participants, um, what happened, and how are you feeling, and what's going on? And as you would imagine, um, everyone's reaction, 100% of the participants range from, gosh, I was playing really well and kind of puzzled what happened, to again, kind of an evolution of, I was really disappointed. I kind of felt uh, socially rejected. Not too sure what I did, but um, felt like everyone else excluded me. So that's not a surprising emotional response to, again, being in a meeting, having a great idea, throwing it out and you know, the idea plops, but 20 minutes later, another teammate and team member of yours pretty much comes up with the same idea and people applaud it. And you think, oh gosh, um, they just didn't really hear me and listen and value what I had to say. So the emotional side of feeling left out, feeling rejected, um, being kicked off the island, if you will, in that way is not very surprising. But Naomi's um, research was the very first to demonstrate at a brain level that when we feel emotionally rejected, it activates the same areas of the brain that are related to and associated with physical pain. So it's one of the reasons we take in our research feedback and that sense of uh, feeling emotionally bullied very seriously. And to take it a step further, this is kind of wild, but one of her colleagues, Nathan Duvall, um, who was part of the original research now at the University of Kentucky, he really wanted to test whether or not this was just an artifact. Um, they did and repeated this study many times before it was published, but he took it a step further. He said, well, gosh, what happens when we feel pain, uh, physical and uh, in general, and maybe emotional as well? And for some of us, it's not uncommon to take some analgesics. 
So uh, what he did was very interesting as he took a group and uh, for several weeks, he gave them a very standard uh, analgesic, um, which was Tylenol. And he gave another group just a placebo, just sugar pills. And for two weeks, they took a regime of uh, these analgesics versus placebos, brought them all back into the lab, and repeated this cyberball experiment. And uh, what Nathan and his team found was um, both interesting and very surprising is the group that took the placebos reported significantly more emotional distress than the ones that were on the analgesics. And uh, secondly, and most importantly, at a brain level, the fMRI suggested a muting of the activated areas of pain. So this idea, again, that uh, social rejection and physical pain are indeed related when we feel as if we're being evaluated socially, when we feel as if we've been given feedback that's um, not fair, when we've been treated in a manner that we don't perceive as being uh, fair, we uh, actually uh, activate an area of the brain that's related both to stress and physical pain. So I think, again, that uh, old saying of sticks and stones can break my bones probably should be amended to be something like sticks and stones can break my bones, but tweets and posts perhaps can hurt much more. It's a very important lesson in um, that side of trust and trust being broken. Well, we know a lot about the neurobiology of both trust and psychological safety um, by really understanding how the brain works. And I'll be really very brief and uh, very fundamental about this. If uh, any of you are Star Wars aficionados and have been watching the latest Star Wars uh, episode or series, I'll use that as sort of a metaphor of um, the dark side and the force is how our brain works. And fundamentally, to survive as a species, um, we in fact seek pleasure and very much work really hard to reject and avoid pain. So think of that as um, the genesis of the survival of the human species and every animal group. And um, if you will, it's, it's kind of the dark side. It uh, enables us to survive by, uh, again, spontaneously and being very cautious about who we approach uh, knowing that there could be some gain, but to be wary of uh, the possibility that there could be some pretty significant losses. That's a very dominant part of our brain. It's often referred to as sort of our mammalian reptilian side of our brain and has millions and millions of years of um, strong power over what we do. And once we feel and perceive fear and anger and anxiety, it's a very tough dark side to um, really break and overcome. And as we've evolved, we've created kind of a newer layer of our brain, the neocortex. And again, the best analogy would kind of be that that represents the force, uh, kind of again coming into its own, not knowing its full powers, working really hard to do our best to control the dark side when we're in fact anxious and stressed. And both of these are sort of the yin and the yang. And uh, it's one way of thinking about how our brain works and literally while you're listening to me right now, if there was an incredibly loud noise right outside where you're sitting and listening to this podcast, your old brain, the dark side, would activate the cortisol fight or flight response. And it would take about a fifth of a second, a delay between the neocortex trying to categorize what was that sound? Is there a danger here? Is this something that um, I really be, need to be concerned with? So we find again that the evolution of our brain um, is really a positive thing. And in fact, as a stress researcher, uh, stress in and of itself is a survival mechanism. 
And uh, we've evolved to use the stress response in a very positive way. We're just not geared as any species to maintain a high level of the extended stress uh, with the wear and tear it has both in our immune system and physical wear and tear on our body. The um, neuroscience of the stress response is also related to one of the interesting hormones that uh, we've looked at um, that often has been referred to as a female hormone, hormone called oxytocin. And you may not know this, but men and women actually are primed biologically to have very different stress responses. In fact, women have a secondary stress response that's much more pronounced than men. And this has been um, known for, gosh, about 25 years from a really great social um, a psychologist also at UCLA, now retired, named Shelley Taylor. And about 20 plus years ago, she actually postulated that women under pressure and stress, uh, due to the release of oxytocin, experience at a behavioral level something called the tend and befriend effect. That um, from an evolutionary perspective, women have a female advantage, uh, bearing offspring and feeding offspring, to tune into nonverbal behavior, to be a little bit more socially oriented, uh, to be more emotionally expressive, particularly under moderate uh, levels and low levels of stress, relative to her male counterparts that under stress release about five times more testosterone than females. I've actually written a, a non-academic article with my colleague, uh, Paul Zack, to try to explain why we find actually in the leadership literature a slight but um, still statistically significant advantage that women may have from a leadership perspective of using more collective, transformational, and participative leadership styles. So I'm not saying that men are any less or more effective than uh, women, but we do find that um, although women do statistically demonstrate a little bit more of the communal uh, traits such as affection and compassion and kindness and helpfulness in general as a cohort relative to men, there's still a significant gender bias that uh, women leaders are actually rated as less popular. What's interesting is although this used to be seen as primarily a female um, hormone, that oxytocin does in fact play a huge role in female reproduction, uh, such as facilitating uterine contractions and in fact fostering um, the breast to create milk for feeding of the young. Uh, we do find that um, it has some very interesting uh, biological priming for both men and women to facilitate uh, the neuroscience of trust and empathy. And we do find that um, as oxytocin is released in men and women, it actually is a signal that lowers our anxiety to interact with others and facilitate trust behavior. Now, how do we know this? This sounds pretty interesting, and uh, we know this that comes out of um, research from a really cool researcher and a colleague of ours. Happens to be a professor at Claremont University that we've worked with for many years. His name, again, is Paul Zak, Z-A-K. In Google, Paul, he's done a lot of TED Talks, a lot of writing, and um, we've partnered with him to uh, develop a few assessment tools. But let me go back 20 years uh, to the genesis of how oxytocin was identified at the brain level to be really the neuroscience glue, the neurobiological glue of both trust and empathy. And it comes from one of several type of economic games that um, one, in fact, that's very famous called the trust game, where Paul would bring in two individuals into a lab. They'd have no uh, social interactions. Each were given real money 
and they were given instructions that um, decision maker one, which could be male or female, could in fact um, give all or some of their money to decision maker two that was on a computer, but they weren't verbally interacting with each other. And the amount of money that was given by decision maker one to decision maker two was multiplied by some amount. And uh, decision maker two was instructed that they could, once they received the money, walk out of the lab truly richer or could um, respond and reciprocate by providing a little bit or all of the money or some of the money back to decision maker one. So it's an interesting paradigm of measuring trust. And um, at the beginning of the experiment, blood is drawn from both decision maker one and decision maker two. And at the end of the interaction, again, a blood draw is done to look at change, if you will, of any hormones and every hormone that would relate to this trust game. So in a practical example, let's begin each started with $25. And they were told that um, decision maker one's told that if they were willing to give all of their money to decision maker two, it would be multiplied by a factor of three, leaving decision maker one with no money, uh, but decision maker two would start with $25, would be given the $25 from decision maker one multiplied by three, and would have a jackpot of $100. And decision maker two, again, given the rules, could decide, gosh, I could just leave the lab with $100, and uh, decision maker one's left with nothing, or I could split the difference and um, we could win as much as we can by collaborating and cooperating. And it really does um, give a, a pretty interesting measure from decision maker one and whether or not we trust and believe that somebody will be reciprocating and they will be benevolent. So this is the protocol of the research study. Um, 20 years ago, this was replicated hundreds and hundreds of times in different labs around the world. And the single most important finding was the more money decision maker one gave to decision maker two, we found that the only hormone that increased in decision maker two was oxytocin. No other peptide, hormone, anything else in the blood changed. And the more oxytocin that increased in decision maker two, there was a direct effect of the more money as oxytocin increased, the decision maker two gave back to decision maker one. So this was the genesis about 20 years ago of identifying oxytocin as the key glue for trust and empathy. And one interesting thing that Paul did, secondary research, was again to give extraneous oxytocin, this doesn't happen too much in the real world, to decision maker one, compared to a placebo. And as expected, the more oxytocin that was given to decision maker one, and they were able to demonstrate that their blood level of oxytocin increased uh, by drawing blood and comparing that to placebo, the more money and just about virtually all the money they had, they did in fact give to decision maker two. So it was a second wave of uh, research that really did, again, suggest that oxytocin is a pretty key ingredient uh, for how we work together. One interesting note is there was about two to three percent of decision maker twos in all of the study that um, wound up with a hundred dollars and just decided to wander out the lab. They were now much richer, leaving decision maker one, their colleague, with absolutely nothing. So in the um, science language, we kind of call these people unconditional non-reciprocators. 
meaning that uh, it doesn't matter how kind and sweet and nice somebody else was, it just sort of screwed their partner. And Paul just calls them bastards. But you get the idea that this is an interesting individual that, um, in fact, oxytocin is floating around at a great level in the brain, but they do not reciprocate. They don't um, act in a benevolent and caring way uh, in return. And in fact, this 2 to 3% seems to be an interesting marker because it's about the same that um, we view psychopathic behavior in the world and uh, may in fact be a marker for people that actually lack all empathy and all caring. And no matter what we try to do to be caring and supportive, these are folks that will in fact not play well with others. We do find also from other research, really interesting research from Anna Chang, who um, is in China that looked at about 1,300 uh, healthy young adults in non-clinical settings and found that the two key genes that uh, really regulate oxytocin expression and goes far beyond our podcast today, but they're called CD38 and CD157. And these are the genes that govern, if you will, the release of oxytocin and do seem to have kind of a genetic um, predisposition. What she found very interesting is that uh, those that had higher expression of these oxytocin genes um, had more close friends and actually better social functioning. So it's again, greater evidence that um, oxytocin, the expression of oxytocin is in fact a contributor to interpersonal stress, uh, interpersonal trust and building high trust uh, teams and relationships. The research is not without some controversy. And again, some of you probably have read some articles on the popular literature saying, gosh, is this really a love hormone? Does this answer the question of how teams work collaboratively together? And there's a plethora of really good research that in general supports a positive trend that oxytocin is in fact uh, the glue for facilitating retention and creativity and working well together. And there are three, three very well-known exceptions, and I won't go into much detail here, but certainly when we provide extraneous oxytocin to somebody, uh, there are some exceptions where people don't play well with others. And those include people that are socially anxious, actually have a personality disorder, that um, giving oxytocin uh, does not facilitate lowering anxiety, it actually increases it. The other are people with trade aggressiveness. And these are folks that uh, if you're driving anywhere, I live here in Los Angeles, so driving uh, is always an adventure. And certainly if um, you probably experience anywhere you are in the world being cut off on the freeway and somebody expressing their displeasure by practicing sign language, probably a pretty good behavioral marker for trade aggressiveness. But again, if we give these individuals extraneous oxytocin, Instead of becoming more mellow and collaborative, they become more belligerent, so another exception. And the last exception is, again, another personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. And these are individuals, again, when we give them extraneous oxytocin, um, in fact, act the opposite way of what we'd like. So all that to say that um, there are, in fact, known exceptions. Um, people are complex. The brain is very diverse. And uh, again, very difficult to discern with any one study. But in general, we find that this helps explain how people and teams work well together. It also helps to explain um, the idea of in-group and out-groups, uh, why some of us have cognitive biases that are built in. And Paul and I are working on a working paper that we hope to uh, submit later this year to 
uh, Harvard Business Review that talks a little bit about our iceberg uh, model of bias, that some of it is very unconscious. And as you can tell from what I've presented already, within a fifth of a second, we tend to um, approach people that we feel safe and avoid people that we don't, kind of built in. There's also this pre-conscious bias, the personality, as uh, Anna Chang's work really suggests, we have a proclivity to be more social and uh, less social depending on our personality. But we also can be mindfully um, biased. We do this every day in the world of HR when we're thinking about who to select for a team. And we hope that um, we're a little bit more conscious and aware of those barriers that um, are unconscious that might prevent the diversity inclusion that we'd look at. We know that um, in-group bias, use race as an example, is built in at a very, very early age. In fact, um, even as young as three-month-old infants uh, rather than newborns really demonstrate a racial bias in favor of members of their own race. Um, we know this by experiments that show that they look longer at uh, their own race faces than others. So therefore, we really believe that racial bias discrimination can begin at a very young age and is shaped um, that experience with other race individuals. And uh, certainly, we can take a look at um, the neuroscience of that as well. Uh, we could extend that to beyond race, that um, we could use religion as a great example. And David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, has done a great uh, research study. And he uh, actually showed a great video as part of the PBS series, The Brain, in which he looked at neural responses for empathy and distress uh, recorded using, again, fMRI with 130 participants. And he used a protocol in which he actually showed a picture of a needle being stabbed into somebody's arm. And um, he backed that up by showing religious labels that were placed above the hands. And that labels were things like Christian and Muslim and Jewish, atheist, uh, even Scientologist. Uh, that's about the groups that he placed. And what he found was that empathetic neural responses were decreased pretty dramatically when participants viewed hands pricked of other religions that differed from their own. Meaning that again, we have this built-in reaction, religion is a great example in David's study, uh, that we show and demonstrate more areas of the brain that are activated, that are empathetic with individuals that are like us than not like us. So this idea of in-group bias can extend to any category, gender and age and ethnicity, even height and weight, appearance, hobbies, um, education, health, political affiliation that's so contentious at this point, um, speech or voice accents. So just about anything can trigger uh, very immediately this in-group and out-group bias. So I'd like to end my podcast today with um, a couple of tips and suggestions, both for how can we facilitate and build high trust, less biased uh, groups at an individual level, and then end with a few ideas of building high trust and safe cultures. So I'd like to really suggest five things that um, we might do at an individual level that research supports. And one of those is to uh, enhance an empathy mindset. You've probably heard of mindset through the great work of Carol Zweck at Stanford University. And she really believes this idea of um, how we focus on skills and abilities versus uh, our luck and our approach to uh, doing the work that we do can really change uh, our approach to working with others. And at least five studies that's been published that she has 
shows that through training, we can actually build a sense of empathy, mindset, and others. The belief that I can act and be more compassionate and caring does result in actual behavior change. So for those of you interested, you might want to again look up um, Carol Zweck and her research work around empathy mindset through training can be really pretty important. A second um, technique that um, has some pretty strong support is the idea of empathy-based perspective taking. It's actually sitting down and thinking about people that are different from us. And again, use any of those categories that I mentioned in terms of in-group bias and trying to put yourself into their shoes. What might it be like to wake up in the morning not being able to see and actually needing um, the puppy sitting at my feet now to walk you to the bathroom in the morning. And again, by putting on those lenses, it helps build a little bit of an appreciation that differences are to be appreciated, not to be feared. We also know that uh, with the popularity of mindfulness med meditation, um, there are types that actually change the brain. And Tanya Singer, S-I-N-G-E-R, at um, in, in Germany at uh, the Max Planck Institute and her research has published very um, strong evidence that compassion-based mindfulness meditation not only modifies the areas of the brain related to enhancing empathy, but there are some very strong behavioral results and outcomes that come out of that. So those are three things that definitely I can recommend uh, for all of us to try on. I think a fourth thing is to reflect on decisions consciously that we make each day. It's what Paul and I are talking about is moving from unconscious bias to mindful bias. It's uh, really thinking about what might be our blinders that are getting in the way of things that we might do that um, we're not really aware of. And finally, it takes a little risk taking here, but make a commitment to interact with people that are different from us. And different can be any way, shape, or form. We have to make a conscious effort. And one of the things we know from research in the neuroscience is that um, when in fact we immerse ourselves in cultures that are more diverse, we actually find that the fear result of uh, our amygdala lighting up when people are different is actually muted. And there's some pretty good studies that really suggest that um, empathetic neural responses, um, when we view faces of other uh, participants uh, that, that um, we viewed from immigration uh, status that the longer you've lived in a country, the longer you've been immersed in another culture, uh, we really find that we appreciate that culture a little bit more. So those would be five things I would at least recommend to consider at an individual level for approaching uh, ways to minimize bias and build a sense of trust in culture. For those of you that um, are very steeped in the diversity inclusion research literature, you probably know there's quite a number of uh, academic studies that really show at best sort of mixed results of online and live diversity training. In fact, HBR had a pretty interesting uh, spotlight article, Why Diversity Programs Fail. And um, I don't think I've got all the answers or a lot of the answers, but I want to suggest a few things that at an organizational level, we can all think about incorporating, if you have the ability to influence, of building a high trust culture that minimizes bias to sort of end my podcast. So very briefly, one of the things I can say is that we should, first thing is provide feedback to leaders. And we actually have tools and other vendors do as well to provide individual feedback uh, to leaders in key roles 
but practices that they can modify and change to create a high trust collaborative uh, team culture and organizational culture. So those feedback mechanisms can be very powerful to uh, help people that are clueless, one of our books that we've written, to become a little bit more aware. It's giving these leaders in a way a guide dog to see the world and their behavior through lenses a little bit more accurately. So I think it's one thing to really think about doing. Michael Leiter, who's up in Canada, has a very structured program that um, encourages and reinforces a, an appreciation culture. And this would be, again, uh, that idea that not just commenting on uh, what people have done in terms of their efforts, but to complement who they are, uh, the people at, the, at, a, at an individual level can have a very big emotional contagion effect. So I think about, again, observing and reinforcing and catching people doing things that uh, support an appreciation culture can go a long way with building high trust. As strange as it sounds, um, encouraging healthy lifestyle practices um, is in fact evidence of uh, reducing and minimizing incivility. I have uh, one of uh, very few research studies, as crazy as it sounds, that really suggests that leaders who lack quality and quantity of sleep, one of the lifestyle practices that employers may not have a lot of uh, control over, but nonetheless are subjected to when people come to work, um, actually demonstrate lower social and emotional competence or lower emotional intelligence. Not sure we need a published study that tells us the obvious that lack of sleep causes people to act a little bit less collaborative, sensitive, empathetic. But again, what companies can do is really foster healthy lifestyle practices so that we come to work not with the idea of uh, our body being there, but our mind and our soul and our heart not. And we call that presenteeism. So I think, again, encouraging wellness uh, health promotion will in fact have a side effect of helping to build a high trust culture. Another thing we can do is be very clear in company values and norms around empathy and intolerance for bullying and we can make this uh, very clear even in the initial interview and selection processes that we have with employees. So from the get-go talking about and uh, walking our talk around those values can be really critical or building a high trust culture. I certainly think for many companies we're so vested in the competence and the ability and experience that we secondarily don't consider for screening, selecting, and promoting people with high civility skills and most importantly social and emotional competence. So it's another area when you look at uh, how do we select, how do we promote, um, are we looking at the interpersonal side as Amy Cuddy and her research at Harvard has suggested the two real key predictors of relating to people is at one side of the coin, competence and ability. The other side is playing well with others, the empathy, the uh, sense of agreeableness, if you want to use a big five factor definition that really comes out of um, selection and promotion. I do think again, the more we can think about um, hiring processes that are blind and thinking about using practices that provide pretty unambiguous information about candidates qualifications uh, blind if you will to gender and age and race and socioeconomic status language etc those things that unconsciously we may discriminate against is pretty important so the extent that any of you can modify or make suggestions around hiring processes that are more open and blind uh, can be very, very functional for creating a high trust culture. I also think that uh, as we would look at 
employee training, the more we could provide micro-skill training for all employees at all levels on conflict management, communication, how to give feedback, and how to listen uh, to each other with empathy will in fact overall enhance tolerance for differences and help contribute to building a high trust culture. So I hope this overview today gives you a little bit of the brain science behind psychological safety, the extent to which I believe you'll give me a break, and interpersonal trust is the extent to which I really believe you've got that right stuff, giving you some insight about the four key pillars of interpersonal trust and psychological safety that really do identify uh, when we think about very rapidly, who do we care about, who are we going to put our trust into, and those four pillars, as I mentioned earlier, really have to do with do people act in a consistent manner? Do they have the skill set and the ability to perform and behave? Uh, do they have the caring for us? And is there authenticity and, and uh, candor and honesty and integrity in our relations? And I finally have uh, provided a couple of suggestions at an individual level, things again like mindfulness meditation and things we can consider doing at an organizational level for enhancing and approaching and building a high trust culture. So thank you for your attention for this podcast and uh, wish you great uh, success in building collaborative high trust cultures in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Nowak, for that engaging and compelling podcast. You did certainly give me a lot to think about, and I hope uh, as well as our listeners. Um, If you would like to continue the conversation or learn more about the neuroscience of trust and empathy when it comes to high-performing teams and DEI work, please feel free to contact Dr. Nowak directly um, at uh, ken at Invisia learning.com or visit their website visialearning.com and i believe you also said you had a, a slideshow that you were going to sh- a deck that you were going to be sharing um to go along with the podcast yeah we'll have that uh, to you then that you can upload to uh, your website great so yeah so we'll have that to share as well when you um when we post this and then also so and you can listen to this and a- any of our other podcasts at forumworkplaceinclusion.org backslash podcast or you can also subscribe to listen on apple po- apple podcast spotify stitcher and anchor again i would like to thank dr kenneth noack for his outstanding podcast today and um, for um, being part of our 2020 series thank you ben thank you And thank you all for listening. Have a great 2020. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates in the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.